0: John Owen was born in 1616. He was a leader among Puritan pastors and authors. One man said that the Puritans were the redwoods in the forest of theology, and John Owen was the tallest tree. Even Jonathan Edwards, the leader of the Great Awakening in the 1700s, said that the writings of John Owen were to be valued above any other author save the scriptures. John Owen entered Oxford at age 12. I don't know about you, but at age 12, I wasn't ready for Oxford. I wasn't ready for Oxford at age 22. He graduated with his master's degree at the age of 19. He would go on to be uh, greatly used by God. In fact, he was referred to, his nickname was the great doer because he accomplished so many things. Famous, Serving in the public spotlight, he served as the chaplain to the parliament and regularly preached, but that didn't soften his convictions. In fact, on one occasion, I read in his biography that he preached before all of parliament and rebuked them for fighting against Ireland instead of delivering to them the gospel. Now to put that in modern day vernacular, that would be kind of like the, the chaplain of the United States Senate getting up before all of Congress and rebuking them for being involved in some war against some nation instead of delivering to them the gospel. Courageous man of faith, a preacher and an author used by God. He, he would well fit into the characters that we have studied thus far in Hebrews 11. You know, courage is a faith and stories of faith and, and courage and amazing events by these great doers. There's another side to John Owen that doesn't slip into the average church bulletin. He struggled with his own lack of consistency and at times barrenness. Writing to a friend on one occasion, he confessed, Quote, I acknowledge unto you that I have a dry and barren spirit and I do heartily beg your prayers that in spite of my sinful inclinations that God would water me from above. Another facet of John Owen's life was his suffering. He and his wife Mary were together as a couple married for 31 years. Together they had 11 children. Children, that's not the suffering part, okay, in case you're wondering. (laughs) The suffering part of their biography was that all but one died as young children. Only one child would grow to adulthood, one of their daughters, but she brought on suffering as she would divorce her husband, contract cancer, move back into the house, and soon after, die. John and Mary Owen suffered the death of all 11 of their children, which when you think about the the life of, of them together, they averaged losing one child every three years. They literally walked in the valley of the shadow of death. Were they people of great faith? Or small faith? The question is, does our understanding of faith allow for both triumph and tragedy? Is our concept of faith big enough to accept both? Does our understanding of faith allow for the mountaintop and the valley? Or would we rather just hear about people who traverse the mountaintop? That's faith. You can't have faith in the valley. Is our faith big enough to handle victory and defeat, sin and grace, triumph and tragedy? Hebrews 11, by the way, will give us both. In fact, people that we've already looked at like Rahab and Samson and and Jephthah and Gideon and David have all found their way into this chapter. And, And for the most part, it's been good news. It's been mostly mountaintops. We've been given, you know, the, the, the top view of what they experience. In fact, uh, by way of review, what we've already learned by faith, if I could quickly go through these, we've learned that faith is our estimate of the character of God. In other words, faith is our statement of what we believe to be the faithfulness of God. We also learned early in chapter 11 that, that faith is our belief in the creating power of God. Remember, in verse 3, that God happens to be the first hero listed, and rightly so. We learn, thirdly, that that faith is our adherence to the cross-centered worship of God seen in Abel's life as he came to God as God prescribed. We learn that faith is our willingness to communicate truth about God. Fifth, we learn that faith is actually our obedience despite obstacles and inexperience to the Word of God. And we looked at Noah, who had absolutely no shipbuilding experience. He virtually stood alone, motivated by his obedient faith. Next, sixth, we learned that faith is our perseverance in spite of the scorn of unbelievers and, most importantly, the silence of God. The silence of God. Number seven, we learn that faith is walking into the unknown and then waiting with nothing more than the promises of God. Waiting on the promises of God. We also learn, number eight, that faith is our abandonment of past desires and present delights and future dreams out of loyalty to God. And tied closely to that principle of faith In Hebrews 11, number 9, is that faith is our willingness to forget the failure of the past and risk everything about our future in obedience to God. I have in my library uh, Arthur Pink's uh, two-volume study on Hebrews, and if I have time, I'll, I'll open it. It's massive and detailed, but he told in that commentary the story as it related to this chapter of Robert Moffat. Robert Moffat is kind of an unsung missionary hero who served faithfully for 50 years in South Africa. And for a number of years early on, he had absolutely no success as we would see it or say it. Not one convert to Christianity. Nobody believed that we faithfully preached and taught. Not one convert after years of ministry. Uh, Some of his friends back in England thought, you know, he's probably discouraged and we probably ought to offer to send him a gift of sorts. And so they wrote him and said, what could we send you to encourage you in the ministry? And he wrote back and he said, send me a communion set. He had no church. He had no convert. But by the time it arrived... Months later, a dozen new believers gathered around to observe the ordinance. The tenth observation we made was that faith is exercised when our weakness does not prohibit our acceptance of an assignment from God. And finally, and for today, our study will teach us that faith is running the race even when it looks like we're losing. How do you feel tonight? Like you're winning or (laughs) losing I won't have a show of hands, but we're probably evenly divided. If Hebrews 11 had stopped at verse 35, which is where we ended in our last session, we might have the misconception, you know, that faith is, is all high fives and wonderful stories of victory. That the faithful always end up with the testimonies of the walls falling down and the seas parting and... Everything working out wonderfully. You know, glory and achievement, success. And frankly, the, the Christian community is filled with misconceptions about faith, and, and, the, and the messages are mixed. In fact, some of the wrong messages are bestsellers today. Misconceptions like, faith will always produce justice. That is, right will always prevail, if you're faithful that life won't be hard. I mean, the the really strong in faith get a double-duty angelic host on their bumper on the way to work, right? Or that faith will engender fearlessness. I mean, the faithful never bat an eye. They never run and hide. Another misconception, that, that faithfulness leads to victory. Or here's another that I thought of. That faith will increase trust, which guarantees the diminishing of trouble. And, and to the extent of your trust, you'll see in proportion the diminishing of trouble. Trouble increases because your trust decreases. Not true. One more, that faith will make suffering an exception to the Christian experience. Maybe that's why it's such a shock to our system. The system of the average Christian, and it affects all of us to wake up one day and realize that bad things can happen to forgiven people, that bad things can happen to faithful people. And so I'm glad that Hebrews 11 doesn't end with verse 35, it goes on to include this rather surprising paragraph. The testimonies of people who lived under the shadows of persecution. Look at verse 36. The Bible says, And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world was not worthy. These are people of faith? Absolutely. You see, faith is being willing to run the race even when it doesn't look like you're on the winning side. Now, what the writer of Hebrews does here is give us three categories of people who are living under what we'll call the shadow of persecution. The first group speaks of those who are being abused. Go back to verse 36. Others experienced, literally, they received the trial of mockings. This would take the Hebrew, the Christian Jew, back to the days of Nehemiah, who was mocked and scorned and accused by those who didn't want the city of Jerusalem rebuilt, Nehemiah chapters 4 and 6. Or Elisha being mocked by young men in 2 Kings 2. This is verbal scorn. This is verbal abuse for running the race. Imagine running the race and no one is there cheering you on. Instead, everybody along the path is is jeering and mocking and saying, you won't make it ridiculing your faith, which, by the way, happens to be the culture of Christianity around the world. And we are living in that era of time in which Christians can be so disturbed because the crowd's cheering is turning into jeering, as if we deserve cheering. can't help but think of Athanasius, the early church leader who defended the deity of Jesus Christ against a corrupting church and false teachers. And he battled it most of his life and would win and lose. He would be exiled five different times, spending a total of 17 years in exile for simply defending the truth that Jesus wasn't a God. He was the very God, the embodiment physically of deity. We're told in Colossians. He battled the heresy that Jesus was simply one of many or a deified human having lived a good or perfect life. This is, this is the fourth century beginning of what would be repackaged many times over and in our lifetimes in the false teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. But at one point, his biography includes the fact that he was so alone, in fact he had been exiled for defending the equality of Christ's deity with the Father, that he was once told, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. To which he responded, then Athanasius is against the whole world. He kept the true gospel even when it meant he stood alone and it didn't really seem like he was winning Little wonder he was nicknamed the Saint of Stubbornness. You're thinking, that's my spiritual gift. I can qualify to be a saint now. That's mine, Saints of Stubbornness. The writer of Hebrews goes on to add here the trial of scourgings. Of course, this goes beyond verbal abuse. This is now physical abuse. Scourging is a word referring to the whip The ancient whip with long leather strands, each strand having a piece of bone or a rock or some metal fragment bound, sewn into each tip. It literally tore into the flesh and blood. Scourging was called the half-death because when it was over, you were barely alive. You can't help but read the beginning of this list, by the way, and think of whom. Jesus, our Lord, the author and finisher of our what? Our faith. Such mocking and jeering and scourging until he was unrecognizable, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, purifying for himself a people for his own possession. The writer of Hebrews adds one more descriptive phrase of abusive treatment upon the innocent. He adds at the end of verse 36, And yes, oh don't forget, also chains and imprisonment. Now the Hebrew believers would think immediately back of Joseph, unfairly imprisoned, or Jeremiah the prophet, imprisoned because he simply told the king the truth and his people Keep in mind, these people that that the writer is thinking of now are suffering abuse, not because they are faithless, but because they are faithful. Not because they lack faith, but because they demonstrate faith. Their obedience to God made their lives painful, not pleasant. Now, the second category of those who live under the shadows of persecution are those who experience not just being abused, but being martyred. He writes in verse 37 that they were stoned. That is, rocks were thrown at them at a close range in order to kill them. You don't need any weapons. This is perhaps one of the most primitive forms of public execution. You don't need any swords. You don't need a hangman's noose and some convenient tree. You just need rocks like Naboth in 1 Kings 9, who was falsely accused by Jezebel and stoned to death. Or Jeremiah, the prophet Jewish tradition has held, who was eventually executed by stoning. Or Stephen, think of the New Testament after his first and only sermon, stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. The writer also adds, they were sawn in two. I know this is fairly gruesome, but There are those who died in this manner. In fact, Jewish tradition has held for centuries that Isaiah, the great prophet, was eventually hunted down. He had run for his life. He had delivered the truth of God's word to King Manasseh. And uh, the king and the people were infuriated. And he had first escaped and hid in a hollow tree. He was discovered, not allowed to leave, and the king ordered the tree to literally be sawed in half with Isaiah inside. They would have immediately thought of Isaiah when they read that. There are other testimonies from church history of believers who are dismembered and tortured for their faith. The writer goes on to add, you notice, and they were tempted. He adds that little phrase. More than likely, this is a reference to being tempted to recant your faith in order to save your life. And what happened when they didn't? They were put to death by the sword. History is filled with such cases. In fact, I have a newer volume of Fox's Book of Martyrs that take you right up until the 1990s. I pulled it out and sat in my study and read story after story. You go back to the time of the Apostle Paul and and the days of Rome. We know from history now and from excavations there are at least 60 catacombs near Rome, in and around, covering more than 600 miles of tunnels underground. Those tunnels would be about eight feet high, narrow, three to five feet wide, with rows of recessed areas on either side. The deceased were placed in these recessed areas and the openings covered over with a slab of marble or some large tiles. And when Christians' graves would be opened later in modern times. Their skeletons told the terrible tales. Heads severed from bodies. Ribs and shoulder blades broken. Bones blackened by fire. And I came across this a this, uh, couple of weeks ago and I tucked it away. It, 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 I, I thought of it. In this study, the St. Petersburg Times covered the story of a Ukrainian man who was mauled by a lioness at the Kiev Zoo just a couple of years ago. He encountered the animal on purpose, believing that God would protect him. In fact, he lowered himself by rope into that concrete enclosure which held four lions And he then walked toward them shouting, God will save me if he exists. One lioness came toward him, knocking him to the ground and severing his carotid artery as a huge crowd above watched helplessly. Was his faith not big enough? I mean, you think, of course. Of course that's not the issue. Well, to him it was. Maybe he was a bit addled. I don't know. I certainly wouldn't go down to an enclosure and test my faith. But listen, there are people in our country, in our state, handling snakes, believing that the test of their faith is that they will not be bitten, and if they are, they will not receive medication because that would be an insult to their faith. There are even more people in our country who will refuse any kind of medication, believing that to do so is an insult to their faith in God. There are millions of Christians, even still further, who are confronted with a crisis of unbelief in God because he did not rescue them from some kind of danger or uh, disability or, or, or a difficulty or perhaps death the death of a loved one. They might not say it out loud, but their hearts are crying out the same. If God exists, he would have delivered me from this. Right? Did it ever occur to you that you're not alone in that kind of crisis? In fact, the truth is, the human heart tends to that. Like Job, who effectively says, where is God? I want an audience with God. Where's he gone? He hasn't gone anywhere. See, that's why he's pulling back a curtain here a little further in Hebrews 11 because we read the first part and we go, oh yeah, God's there. Yeah. We believe that. Walls are tumbling. Seas are parting. The dead are rising. Well, he's here in the last part of the chapter as well. He's just in the shadows. Russell Lowell penned it so well when he wrote that it seems the truth is always on the scaffold and wrong is seated upon the throne. He writes, yet behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. When you live in the sunshine, God is with you. We know that. Nobody questions it. When you live in the shadows... God's there too. In fact, for someone, even at this very moment, He is walking with them through the valley of what? The shadow of death. He's there too. Faithful believers throughout the ages have experienced the suffering of being abused, of being martyred. Now, thirdly, the writer includes... Those who are abandoned or ignored. Notice the middle part of verse 37. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. Well, that's a reference to the fact they had no other material for clothing. No linen, no cotton, no silk. This is the poorest of the poor. These are dried, rough leather skins from goats and sheep. He goes on to describe them as destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. It's interesting to discover that the original language uses the present tense for these participles. In other words, they are constantly destitute, which means they don't know where their next meal is coming from, their next drink of water. That's how destitute they are. They are constantly afflicted. That word is pressed hard, under pressure, stress, from trying to survive. They are constantly ill-treated, which can be rendered tormented. They are literally driven from their homes, away from their people. They are not only abandoned, they are disowned. If anybody, to anybody, it looks like our side is not winning. It's these people. Verse 38, they wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. In other words, they're reduced to the most basic form of living, finding refuge in some cave, digging out some dwelling out of of the ground, David hiding away in the wilderness, would be a story of this, 1 Samuel 22. Obadiah feeding prophets in a cave who were hiding from Jezebel's assassins, 1 Kings 18. Elijah running for his own life and hiding out in a cave for a while, 1 Kings 19. And of course from history, Christians hiding in, in, in these underground catacombs during the Roman years of persecution. Reduced to the barest forms of survival Are they losers or winners Verse 38 says this is God's impression of whom the world was not worthy oh i love that disowned by their own people adopted by their heavenly father Ignored by their world, loved by their Savior. No home for them on earth, (laughs) but can you imagine the sight of their new home in heaven? Are they losers or winners? It all depends on where you stop the story. Some are called to win by living. These are called to win by dying. Some are called to win through triumph. Others are called to win through tragedy. Paul would say to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. That's winning. Philippians 1:21. Think about it for a moment. Beloved, were, were those martyred missionaries, uh, Jim Elliot and uh, Nate St, losers or winners? Did the cause of Christ lose on that sandy beach or win? Is the cause of Christ today losing or winning in China, in Vietnam, in Pakistan? In Sudan. Is it winning or losing? It depends on where you stop the story. Was God winning or losing when Christ stood before Pilate? Or when Christ hung on the cross? Was his cause losing or winning? Depends on where you stop the story. Hebrews 11, in this last paragraph, tells you the story's not quite over. I mean, think about it. Go back 19 centuries. Who was winning? The Apostle Paul or the Emperor Nero? Who won? <laughs> Who lost? It depends on where you stop the story. In fact, we've lived long enough so that in our world to this day, parents name their sons Paul and their dogs Nero. (laughs) You don't name your dog Paul and your son Nero. At least I hope that. Did anybody do that just in case? (laughs) Who was winning? Hitler or Cory ten Boom? When she walked through that gate, if you've read her biography, at Ravensbrook. Incarcerated along with the Jews, she and her family had tried to help escape the Nazi death camps. Corey is now among them. She's able to smuggle a small Bible into that camp. She would tell her story one day that, that Bible, and I'm quoting her words, became an ever widening circle of hope. Like beggars clustered around a blazing fire, we gathered about it, holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. On December 31, 1944, by a clerical error and the will of God, I was released. Already 52 years old, if you know her story, she would spend the rest of her single life, traveling and testifying. And this is one of her favorite statements. There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Who won? Verse 39 talks about the shadows, not of persecution, but of promise. Look there. And and all these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, what's he saying? Very quickly, first he's saying uh, they weren't losers, they were overcomers. Secondly, he's saying that the story isn't completed without us. 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 In other words, they looked forward to promises yet fulfilled. The promised Messiah, whose death on the cross would perfect, would complete the gospel, redemption. We look back to the finished work of Christ. They looked forward to it. The promise was there, but they didn't see it and never did during their lifetime. And, and the writer here says, We have it better. Why? Well, because we know so much more than they did, We have a completed revelation. We've been given the historical facts that Christ did come. Those prophecies were fulfilled. He did die. He did rise from the dead. We have both Old Testament and New Testament. We live in in the full disclosure of the sunlight of God's word. They lived in the shadows of promises yet to be fulfilled. That's his point. But it was enough for them. Think about it, it was enough. It wasn't, what we had and what we have is better, but it was enough. They didn't have Matthew through Revelation. They had no written description of the Father's house. They didn't know at the tree of life and the glorious new earth and heaven. They knew nothing of the Bema seat. And that they would be rewarded for their labor of love, their acts of faith. They knew knew nothing of, um, of the sound, the words of Jesus from the cross who would say, it is finished. They knew little or nothing of the Holy Spirit on whom we depend every single day. That's the point. If they could trust God with so little What will we do having it so much better? John Calvin, the reformer, wrote on this text, All they had was a tiny spark of light to lead them to heaven. We have the sun of righteousness shining on us. But they persevered. They didn't know half what we know. And so they encourage us by their faith in that they persevered with so little. How can we, with so much, not continue the race even when it looks like we're not winning? One author wrote These ancient saints form our spiritual family tree. Without them, we have no roots, without us, they have no branches. They are made perfect, that is, they are completed as the life-giving sap of their lives flows through our spiritual leaves and blossoms. We together fill the earth with the fragrance of faith. Isn't that good? And so it's the testimony of a martyr from India or China or Afghanistan, or Rome, that infuses our hearts with courage. It's the faithfulness of God in the shadows of ancient history that has a way of bringing rays of sunshine to present tense living. It's the testimony of a man who loses all 11 children along with his wife. And trusting God that brings hope To the heart of every believer who suffers the death of a loved one. It's the struggle of a hymn writer 200 years ago who fashions just the perfect words for our hearts that we sang recently this past Christmas. Most of our family of cousins and aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews, sisters in law and parents and grandparents. We all convened at the home of um, one of my younger brothers who is suffering brain cancer, who now is unable to travel, and so we kind of moved Christmas there. The tumors spread, the pain is increasing. Recent MRIs show that white film of cancer now on both hemispheres. Still lucid, still funny, sarcastic still trusting. In fact, we made a big circle. We were going to pray, and and Tim says, let's sing. And begins to lead us in, great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with the... Isn't it interesting that the one who reigns in the shadows never has a shadow of turning ever changing? The lyrics continue. Thou changest not. Thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, not all I have wanted by the way, but all I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. You see, it's true for all these in Hebrews 11, in the first part, who lived in the sunshine. It's true for all those here who live in the shadows. It's true for you, too, and it's true for me. Faith is running the race even when it looks like you're losing, but you're not. It just depends on where you stop the story. So don't stop. Don't stop. It doesn't end here. It ends when, among other things, our racing is exchanged with our reigning reigning with our coming King. The story is not over until God has the final word. Amen? Would you like a cookie? (laughs) Father, thank you for the privilege of fellowship and the family life that we can enjoy in these chapel hours. Thank you for this fellowship committed to truth. Thank you for every, every believer who's taken time out because they love the assembly. They love the Word. They love to sing. They love each other. Father, this is such a sweet privilege to be able to worship with them. We thank you.